You're listening to the Gov Future podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we feature a panel discussion from the December 14th, 2023 Gov Future Forum DC event. We'll hear how government agencies are modernizing IT infrastructure in the face of evolving artificial intelligence and automation technology. On the panel were Dr. Garfield Jones, Associate Chief of Strategic Technology for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Louis Eichenbaum, DOI Zero Trust Program Manager, and Maureen Marty Fromuth, Chief of Staff, Legislative Liaison at U.S. Cyber Command. Stay tuned. Um, so I'm Marty Fromuth. Uh, as was previously pointed out, um, I will I will be very transparent in, I, in the fact that I have a very unique background. Um, I am a uh, military reservist in the Air Force, and um, I have been jumping back and forth between active service in the Air Force and time in industry, which most people think is absolutely insane, uh, and I agree with them, um, but it's also given me a really interesting opportunity to be a translator between the tech community and the federal government, primarily the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. And if I could make one huge plea for, for all folks that are here, learn how to translate, learn how to be an interlocutor, because that is where we actually can make some incremental and sometimes very monumental uh, change in bringing out modernization. So fast forward after my time in the military, uh, I worked at Amazon Web Services where I was in tech sales. Uh, and I focused primarily on artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, solutions, and then decided I wanted to go have even more fun and completely divorce myself of tech. Uh, and I decided that I was going to uh, go and work on Capitol Hill uh, in the Senate uh, as a staff member and, and now doing legislative affairs for, uh, for Cyber Command. So yes, I have an identity crisis every two years, but it has served me well. Um, so fun fact, other than the fact that I, I am consistently rebuilding my, myself, uh, I was actually a competitive figure skater for 10 years of my life. Yes. Um, yes, I skated with Terry Lipinski, if you still know who that is. <laughs> Michelle Kwan was absolutely, absolutely my idol. And there were several Halloweens in which I went as... Uh, Oh, what's her face? Uh, Tanya Harding. There we go. I'm going to say also. So thank you very much for listening to me ramble part one. All right. Well, thank you for having me here. Uh, my name is Gary Jones. Um, so everybody else had a nickname on there. So I gave mine. My, my real name is Garfield Jones, but obviously there's reasons I go by Gary. Um, so... I work for the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, it, known as CISA. I'm the Associate Chief for Strategic Technology. I mainly work R&D and emerging technologies. I, I get requirements from within CISA, the, the entire agency, all our divisions, and I look at what emerging technology can fit and um, satisfy those requirements. Uh, as far as my background, oh man, that that's a that's a long day. Um, I've 
I retired from the military uh, after 25 years um, as a as a warrant officer um, in a cybersecurity warrant officer uh, in 2018. Um, I teach part time as an adjunct professor for Morgan State and uh, University of Maryland uh, University College or global campus. Mess that up, um, but engineering. Uh, let's see. I, did my doctorate in uh, engineering and industrial engineering. Uh, I uh, worked mainly in um, artificial intelligence and, and machine learning, looking at how uh, we could apply AI and ML to um, risk and vulnerability within the cybersecurity space, because I was working as a cybersecurity warrant. And um, then I, uh, Went with CISA. Uh, it wasn't CISA then. It was uh, MPPD and DHS. Uh, I had headed. Uh, uh, well, I was the deputy program manager for CDM, uh, Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation. Uh, that that was one of the largest uh, federal programs, and uh, I'll probably mention it in some of the questions you'll ask. And um, what else? Uh, so yeah, I fun fact about about myself uh i love motorcycles uh you know it's it's i see you back there yes yeah, <laughs> I, I i love them all i i love speed i i love um I, I love uh sport bikes i love um you know cruisers uh i i have a cruiser now um that was you know because of my wife uh she was very happy with with the sport bike uh thing that i was going through um, and yes, I'm still going through a midlife crisis. So uh, appreciate that. And um, you know, got wife and and four beautiful kids, and uh, love spending time with them. Great. All right. Uh, hi, I'm Lou Eichenbaum, the Department of the Interior. Uh, I, I will start with a fun fact. I was also a competitive figure skater. <laughs> Marty and I actually know each other. We were a competitive Paris team for years. We were very successful. <laughs> That is not true. <laughs> That's your first lesson in zero trust. <laughs> trust no one. So, uh, yeah, and uh, first of all, apologize, especially you two, for being late. Uh, another fun fact, I live in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Anyone here live in Fredericksburg? No. And I want to thank Ron for making this an evening event. So it took me over two hours to drive here. Thank you. <laughs> well, usually it's 8 a.m., so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's never a good time. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I work for the Department of the Interior. I am their Zero Trust Program Manager. In that role, I report to our CIO, Darren Ash, who is a great leader and a very supportive leader of Zero Trust. Tell him that if you see him. Um, so what do I do with Zero Trust? So I lead a team of uh, roughly, it's a virtual DIY team with membership from all bureau their offices of about 107 people. Together, we collaborate on developing our long-term strategies for zero trust. Uh, we develop, we define what capabilities we need, uh, long-term funding planning. Um, and most importantly, what we're doing with this team is building a culture of zero trust in the Department of the Interior. So um, does it, who knows what zero trust is? Raise your hand. If you think you really know what zero trust is, I'm going to call on you. Does anyone know what zero, I know this is a, I know this is a, a, a modernizing government meeting. A lot of people are saying, what's the cyber guy doing here? I thought they were contrary to innovation. Surrounded. 
I'm going to I'm going to explain that in a minute. At the end of this, you guys are going to love me. And you're going to be like, yes, we need to talk to our zero trust people. Anyone want to take a stab at what zero trust is? We we can do interactive, right, Rob? That's yes, it. I, I got it right. Yeah. All right. So last, all right. From our friends from G2X, buddy. Yeah, it's G2X. Um, so I think it, it could be wrong, and I'm okay to be wrong. So correct me. Um, it, it's a framework. I think zero trust there's is no a cybersecurity framework. There's no wrong answer. I will not. If yeah. you, I will not. There's. Yeah. All right. That's all. That's all I know. Is a cybersecurity framework. Okay, that is wrong. Next. <laughs> yes, you in the back, sir. That network where the government were kind of like a moat and everyone had to come in and we're trying to open that up where we put applications out into the cloud. So trust nobody, make sure your application is secure so as you enter. Yeah. I, honestly, you're both right. It, there's a lot of misunderstanding what zero trust is. What I'm trying to say is it is not just a cybersecurity thing. It's not a bunch of new cybersecurity stuff that's going to prevent you from modernizing your systems, applications, infrastructure, and data management stuff. It is something that is the biggest driver in federal government right now to help you do that. Um, Zero Trust is a strategy uh, for, it's. it started as a cybersecurity strategy. And yeah, you can still say ultimately it's to help improve our uh, security posture. And like the gentleman said in the back, it started with the concept of for years, we, we've created these big giant networks surrounded them with every security control we can purchase, and then we put all of our assets into this same network. Um, that's not been effective, because number one, we know we can't prevent compromises. They're gonna happen. And that's the other number one principle of zero trust, assume compromise. Assume someone's already in your network looking around. So instead of having this one big network where everything sits, uh, where in that model, you're only as secure as your least uh, secure device, Basically, what it does is it started with the principle of identify your most critical house assets, build security controls directly around them. Whether they sit in your network, sit in the cloud or whatever, build the appropriate security controls to protect them. So if someone compromises one of your laptop devices in the network, they won't be able to scan your network, see these open ports on this uh, critical asset and be able to move laterally to compromise it. That's how it started. A gentleman named John Kinderbog, my idol, someone I consider a friend, uh, he's still debating that on his end, but he's, he invented zero. Well, he, he invented, created the term zero trust about 10 years ago. There was a lot of stuff before that. He created the term and created the original principles. And it was all around the idea that, like, again, Jim Lynn said in the back, castle and moat protections don't work. So initially back then the thought was, all right, well, let's build smaller castle moats around all of our assets. Uh, that's what we, we tried to do that in, in Department of Interior six or seven years ago. The problem with that back then, it was just too expensive. You know, you had to buy redundant uh, routers, switches, IDSs, web application firewalls, all this stuff. We had to buy redundant hardware and try to build it around these high value assets. Too expensive, died on the vine, never got anywhere. With modern, newer modern technologies, uh, it's enabling us to do this using things like software-defined networking, software, you know, using a, a security as a service, you know, modern technologies, the cloud, web-based tools like that. It's enabling us to, to do this better, more efficiently. And it's ultimately driving modernization within our organizations. Uh, one of the one of the big things you I'm sure you you guys are probably are working on some sort of phishing-resistant MFA solution for all your applications. Uh, biggest challenge in government right now, particularly in DOI, because 
we still have a multitude of legacy systems that won't support that. So it's driving us to modernize these ap applications using modern secure coding practices, new tools, new technologies that will enable us to implement uh, MFA on these solutions. But you know what else it's doing? It's creating better services for our customers, better user experience, better you know better ways to de deliver the things we've been delivering for years in this old this old model. Uh, if we can continue down this path, it will enable us to provide you know really compete with the you know the private sector the type of services they provide. Um, and I'm realizing I got right into the topic. I never actually introduced myself. Yes, right. And the, don't forget the fun fact. Okay, all right, I'm sorry. I'll stop there quickly. So, yeah, I work at the Department of Interior, Zero Trust Program Manager. I've worked there 22 years. Uh, it's the best place in government to work. We have the best mission organizations like the National Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Services, U.S. Geological Sur uh, Survey. We have a great, a great mission, great people, love it. Uh, I've held several primarily cybersecurity roles. I was actually the... Um, the deal on the acting CISO for the department for about five months. That didn't go well, but you know, I did it for a while. I'll be honest. I was the deputy CISO for several years. That was a little better. I've worked in organizations like the Bureau of Land Management, where I was the CISO, uh, the Office of Service Mining Reclamation Enforcement, where I was a CISO. But when I first came in to the deal, I worked for an organization called the National Business Center, which is a shared service provider. Anyone use uh, services from DOR? It, uh, anyone use our payroll services, FPPS, QuickTime? Nobody? I know you do, Chris. You you work there, dude. Um, anyways, so I was an IT operations person, and I wanted to get into security because I thought we could do it better. Uh, I you know I was tired of security just being the, the, the traffic cop that said, well, policy says this, so you can't do it. I'm like, well, why don't we use some risk management practices and help me develop a, a system or service that uh, that is working effectively meeting our mission needs, but at the same time is you know at the lowest level of risk that we can get it to. We understand our risk, we can manage them. So that's why I'm doing cybersecurity. I think zero trust is finally the initiative that can get us there, can drive us to that. Um, and with all that said, uh, I will end by giving you my fun fact. So I am a former uh, championship level flag football coach in the in the Fredericksburg area, and it's it's probably good you guys don't live in the Fredericksburg area because I can embellish a little bit. I was I did coach for several years. You know I have three kids; they're all in their twenties now, so I don't coach as much anymore, obviously. But uh, we did win two league championships in the Fredericksburg flag football league, um, and no one seems quite impressed with that. But this is like I was. <laughs> Ecstatic. I think there were there was talk of me being the Bill Belichick of the of the league. I never not, I know when Bill this was a couple of years when Bill Belichick was still good. So um uh so I'll just say I, I never actually heard anyone say that, but I assumed it. But yeah, that's my fun fact. I love you know, I love coaching and I hope someday whenever my workload kind of slows down, I can go back to doing youth coaching again and figure skip. There you go. All right. All right. So, uh, Marty, you got the, got the mic, so I'll ask this question to you. So, like, so obviously, AI is AI all day, all day in the tech ecosystem. It can't, can't go a single day without AI. I think the biggest drama was uh, who's the CEO of OpenAI? I don't know. No, it's, like it's going to be a television series. So, let's talk a little bit about that. So, you know, given all, about all this excitement about AI, and of course, we're here in the federal government side, you know, how do you see the role that AI is going to play in general in the government and in modernizing 
all of these systems that run everything, yes. So uh, I, it's interesting, AI has had quite a, uh, quite a history in the life path. Uh, you know, a lot of people are unaware of the fact that the term actually was coined in the 50s and 60s. It's been around for quite a bit, um, and it's gone through many valleys uh, and, and high peaks. I think we're in one of those high peaks, many of which a lot of people did not predict how fast we would, we would actually get here. I think there are many in the community, myself included, that didn't expect this boom of generative AI to take off so quickly. Uh, and so a lot of people are trying to figure out um, what do we do with it? And I think what's really unique right now is not just the fact that technology has advanced so quickly and we're seeing such a huge step forward in the technology, but I think what's very crucial here is that you're also seeing more accessibility to the technology. So I am not a technologist by trade. Uh, I used to call myself, insert technological term here, stupid, because I, I, I have a liberal arts degree. I have a you know bachelor's in economics, master's in international relations. And then I decided that I was going to catch the technology bug. And I'm now going through a master's in data science, which much the chagrin of my husband when I tell him about various different statistical things like p-values glazes over. Um, but But... You know, at the end of the day, it's now accessible to people that it was never accessible before. Things like chat GPT are literally at your fingertips. You can you can put in a prompt for an image and get something on the back end. Um, I saw recently uh, that there's a, a news station that is now being created by generative AI. It's almost a democratization, if you will, of this incredible technology. So how do you use it? And how does it, to your point or to your question, um, be a part of your modernization plan? I, I will say technology can be incredibly impactful, but you should never use technology for the purpose of just using the technology. So when you look at what exactly you're trying to accomplish, look at the objective that you're trying to accomplish, and then identify the right technology for that objective. You know, zero trust, for example, is a type of a framework to use technology to use different types of of, uh, <laughs> uh, of of approaches of tools, but it's to modernize the cybersecurity or the security of your applications, your network, etc. AI is another one of those tools. Um, so absolutely embrace it, understand and learn about it. But understand that it's also a, a tool. So don't just go run at it. I can do this really cool thing. I am also very excited about those really cool things that you can do. Um, and take a step back and always go back to the objective of what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and to my very, very previous uh, kind of opening statement, a lot of times those objectives are not technology objectives. They're actually business objectives. So again, I go back to figuring out how to and pushing you to figure out how to be the interlocutor between the different um, uh, communities and environments. Us, you know, liberal arts degrees over here, um, we have to learn about what it is that that um, AI is, but more importantly, as technologists, you need to learn what it is that I need to accomplish, what my objective is, and then identify how artificial intelligence ultimately fits into that. Makes sense. As I say, you know, people talk about the technology chasm a lot, or the, the valley of death sometimes. Exactly. And, and I know that AI has crossed the chasm that we've moved from like the area of uh, only, you know, technologists to the mass 
uh, public when, you know, when you get a text from your mom at like 8 p.m. and she's like, have you used ChatGPT? I'm like, okay, I think we've crossed the chasm. <laughs> it's now in every product. And actually, Lou, this is kind of a good follow-up here because as dealing with protect, not Lou, I'm sorry, Dr. Jones, uh, Gary, the, uh, the follow-up here, then we'll, we'll, we're going to work our way back to you. So, uh, yes, uh, you know, in, in the area of protect, you know, of course, one of the things you're, you're focused on is protecting our infrastructure across the board. Um, AI and IoT and all the technologies, uh, machine learning, all these things, you know, offer so many opportunities, but at the same time, so many challenges, both for the people trying to use them and for, for people trying to use them against other people. So, um, kind of, how are you seeing all this play? I mean, how are you responding almost like on a daily basis to all the all the new things that are coming out? So, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, so interesting. A uh, good question. I mean, the AI. So I I generally don't use the term AI. There there's a reason I don't use the term AI because I don't feel we're there yet. Right. We've got several layers to go, right? Um, I, I, I feel like there's the automation part of it, there's the there's the deep learning part of it, there's the machine learning part of it, and then there's the um, artificial intelligence or general artificial intelligence when you're actually um, producing something. Uh, it's, it's, it's great to, to, to hear that people are, are pushing towards that, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot more to be done to get that, uh, the, the way we were using it in 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 CISA and and trying to uh, incorporate it, of course, is by trying to identify cybersecurity incidents, um, trying to uh, use it to identify uh, you know any kind of anomalous network traffic uh, within the critical infrastructure within any any of these these areas. I we. Um, we tried to generate uh, proposals and, and projects that really encompass every aspect of AI from, from as, as I said, from just automating uh, small, uh, you know, tasks, which kind of lessen the, the burden on our analysts. Our analysts have a lot of data to go through. And that's, that's what people sometimes forget, but it's great to, to hear that you're going through the, the data analysis. The data is the big part of it, right? And so we, we, we're, we're concentrating on trying to analyze the data that's coming in and trying to analyze it in an expedient way so that we can, we can make decisions off of it. We can, um, you know, uh, you know, get, uh, identify incidents, identify things that, that we couldn't identify before in, in a speedy manner, I guess you could say rapidly, but we, we tend to, to, to have that. Um, we, we are also looking at, uh, you know, really kind of incorporating, uh, uh, AI into, uh, some of our, you know, looking for high performance computing, uh, you know, that marrying that with AI, I think that's where we, we're, we're looking with high performance computing. We're looking with, uh, so that it can actually run more complex and and um, you know algorithms that can really identify um, cybersecurity incidents. So uh, it, there's a, there's a lot going on with with, with AI, but we've got to make sure that we're we're taking it through the the steps. 
if we're, you know, chat GPT, it's great, but, you know, there's hallucinations and all those things that, that, that go along with it. And it's interesting we see that, that news feed because now we're talking about misdis and malinformation that, you know, we're coming on to that, that fun season versus a, unfortunately got a lot of press <laughs> for it. But, uh, you know, to identify mis this and malinformation is one of the areas that we're looking at as well. Um, that's the, that we have to be able to, to understand. So we look at mis this malinformation incidents. Um, yeah, those are, those are some of the big, big areas that, that we're looking at and, and, and trying to make sure that we, uh, we, we incorporate the AI tools and incorporate them and integrate them correctly. Because if you notice with AI, you don't always get the same answer, right? You're, it's a probabilistic solution. If it's a deterministic solution, which means that you're going to get a one or a zero, or you're going to get a yes or a no, that's fine. But most of the time, you're going to ask it, with ChatGPT, you ask it one, you ask it one way, it'll give you an, an answer. And it's, it's like my kid, you know, I'll ask them one way, and they'll give me one answer. I'll ask them a, a, a different way, and it's a whole different answer, right? It's it's just, but it might be half half true, half you know whatever. So you got to really be careful on that, and that's what we're trying to do. So make sure we integrate it the correct way. Yeah, it's actually a good segue here because I want to bring back zero trust and into this picture here and talk a little about with modernization, which is kind of the idea of. I guess, moving us past our legacy and what we have. That's a little tricky given that a lot of the value is in data. And so what does it mean to modernize in the context of that? And talk about that. And I want to piggyback off that at some point, but why don't, you, why don't you start from that? Yeah, so, and I did want to start by saying I do, I completely agree with Dr. Jones here. I, AI today is, right, it's really a bunch of really powerful algorithms. It's not really AI, but we can call it that. And I think Marty said something that really resonated as well is that um, yeah, AI is super cool, right? It's chat GPT. It's only been out a year, but, you know, generative AI, there's so much potential for that, but it's almost a solution looking for a problem. It's like, I, I, I was, you know, I would, I had people coming to me saying, Hey, we need to start using AI. I'm like, okay, what do you need it for? Like, we don't know yet, but we know we need it. And so it starts with defining what is, what is the business? It has to, to support, you know, a business process, a business problem, right? It starts with developing those use cases around that. And that's what we're doing with, with, um, within the Department of Interior. And that leads me to zero trust. So, uh, you know, there's, there, there's kind of three, three foundational pieces to zero trust. I mentioned micro segmentation, putting your controls as close as you can to the, uh, to the, the, the critical systems you're trying to protect. There's also strong identity management, right? That's, yeah, that's fishing resistant MFA, but it's more than that. It's building identities where it's more than just, hey, someone needs access, let's have it to a group. It's creating good data around identity attributes, ultimately, ultimately making dynamic decisions around that to determine what kind of applications and data can they access. Uh, the third one, this is where AI really can play a big role to help us, is logging and analytics. Throughout this process, you want to be able to continuously assess, monitor, and make dynamic authorization decisions. You know, at any given time, someone may be allowed, you know, at some at some point in time, someone may be allowed to access your financial system. But something could happen. Maybe their identity is compromised. Uh, that could, you know, flip an attribute within our, you know, some system. And you want to be able to make a decision now 
on, on whether this person should be blocked, whether they should be reported to the stock. Instead of really what happens today, where you got a bunch of people sitting in a room looking at a computer screen, screen running um, queer, queries and hopefully finding this stuff, right? So it, there's a lot of potential for help to help with that. And now this leads me to data management. This is one of the biggest struggles I see in federal government. I, I talk to everyone across the federal agencies about zero trust. And within zero trust, there's there's five pillars. There's identity pillar, device pillar, network pillar, application and workload pillar, and the data pillar. Every everyone in, in federal government is struggling with this. I'll be honest, we're we're still trying to categorize all of our data across the department. Uh, ultimately, we need to. We want to understand what all of our data is. We want to be able to tag that data, uh, ideally using automated processes, and then ultimately make access decisions depending on a certain identity attribute based on what what sort of data uh, tagging you have in place. We can make determinations on what access. Man, that is hard to do with these current manual processes. This is where we see an opportunity for AI to help us. So we are, you know, we're. We're, we're being, you know, we're taking a deliberate approach with AI. We're, we're looking at, like I said, we're starting with building business cases for what, you know, what are we really trying to solve, you know, and then we'll look at testing and figuring out how we can solve that. But, but again, I, another area where I, I really feel like zero trust is helping to drive modernization. There's not been a lot of focus on data. You know, Ron and I talked about this because it's not sexy, right, Ron? That's what Ron called it, not me. Um, but it's, yeah, because people, Data is the most critical asset within our organizations. And we're all focused on, well, let's do cloud and AI and zero trust. No one's talking about data. And so I think zero trust is helping put in a focus on that and developing modern technologies and practices to, to better manage our data. Very good, yeah. It's like the most unsexy thing, but it is the core to everything we do because everything we're doing now is so data-centric. I actually wanted to piggyback on something that Gary said, and that's just for you, though, and maybe we'll kind of bring it back to uh, to the to you, Dr. Jones, Gary, I don't know what to call you. <laughs> I'm going back here. Uh, I, I like Dr. Jones. There you go. Me too. I'll go with Dr. Jones. Um, and that is, so maybe we'll even coin a new term right here in this uh, forum. You know, we talked about zero trust, but as what Marty was talking about, maybe there's this new idea of zero truth. And the idea of zero truth is that can we really, it's, but speaking of misinformation and disinformation, we see something in writing, we see an image, we hear an audio, we watch a video, and now... I think we're starting to be trained that we can't really believe anything we see or we hear or we read, which I think poses a real challenge for folks who are trying to manage data. So it's one thing to deal with zero trust in terms of systems and networks and insider and outsider and threat and not threat, but maybe it's the data we can't trust. And that's not a zero trust thing. It's like a zero truth thing. So, hey, Kinder Bob, if you hear that, I got that trademark. But uh, I don't know. What do you want to think about some of these issues of, of misinformation? How does that play into what you, into what you're doing? Well, it, it's it's huge. It's a huge problem. I mean, my big my biggest concern with many of our initiatives right now, like identity management, for example, implementing fish, phishing resistant MFA. Honestly, that's that's not too difficult. It's it's a technology problem we can solve with technology. Yeah, it's it's hard because you got to modernize applications that will support these enterprise uh, identity management solutions. The biggest challenge we're we're having right now in identity management is getting good quality attribute data. We have multiple systems that contribute to an identity an identity's attribute data. Um, we in 
Another challenge I see in federal government, this is a challenge we have at DOI, is, well, what's what's the authoritative source? You know, which one's the authoritative source? And can you trust that data to make decisions? And and think how catastrophic it could be if we don't have good identity data um, that we're using to make decisions. It means, you know, if if uh, a person needs access, they're in, I use finance a lot because it's easy. I, I understand that a little bit. Someone's in the finance department, right? They need to get to their financial system. If they don't have the right attribute, they're not going to be able to get to it. So we need to make sure that data is good and vice versa. Uh, let's say, you know, you're in the IT department, but all of a sudden you got access to this critical uh, data source that you should not be looking at. Um, so it's, you know, data quality for me is one of my biggest concerns with, with zero trust because we're trying to make do you know, really cool new advanced ways of, you know, controlling access to resources, but it requires our data to be, you know, very solid. You know, we, we can't keep operating the way we have in the past with, eh, yeah, we can't really trust the data, but yeah, we'll figure it out. We, we have to solve that problem. Do you want to jump in Yeah. So this is where um, my, like, oddities sort of start, uh, my very broad experiences start kind of overlapping and sort of converging, right? So we have this artificial intelligence world. We just talked about how generative AI is now creating, quite frankly, more of an a threat vector um, for some of our cybersecurity practices, particularly as it relates to the identity on um, a facet of zero trust and other kind of uh, approaches. When you look at how to deal with this from a legislative perspective, right? How do you deal with this? We've had a lot of conversations about watermarking things that are from generative AI. Our adversaries don't care about watermarking. They're just going to do it anyway. So you're starting to see sort of the next, um, the kind of next evolution in, in how we think and how generative AI is pushing security and cybersecurity um, uh, to the next uh, level. So I'm, uh, I by train, I'm in the Air Force, right? So um, my background has been in uh, looking at adversarial threats in the air domain. Uh, so the world started off with two aircraft going and figuring out how to shoot each other out of the sky with literally pistols. I'm not kidding you. In many cases, it was literally pistols. It actually used to be dirigibles, AKA balloons. Um, that, is, that is the history of the Air Force, no lie. Um, then, you know, fast forward several decades, we got a radar. I could see something out there and now I could do something about it. Well, then the people on the other side said, cool, I'm going to do something so you can't see anything on the radar. I'm going to create this thing called a jammer or electronic attack. Now your radar can't pick up anything. Well, the next iteration started and we said, hey, I'll raise you a jammer or an electronic attack. And it just kept going on and on and on and on. And it's very fascinating as you look at artificial intelligence and generative AI, is that where we're going? Are we now having to combat sort of that next level up? I'm going to tell you, legislatively, we're not ready to even slightly deal with this conversation and source documents and what's guiding. Like, I don't. We are, technology is moving so fast. It is extremely hard for us to keep up with it from a policy governance uh, and uh, legislative perspective. It's so interesting for those of you who are following perhaps the war in Russia and Ukraine, and uh, then maybe you could pick that up on this as well, or you can comment that as well, that it's funny we have these huge systems that are tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars, or rubles if you will, and they're being taken out by 
$300 Mavic drones that have a, a thing attached to it, right? And it's like, and we never thought that we were going to be, I guess if you were watching uh, Star Wars, you would have known about the drone wars, but now we are in drone wars. We're actually literally having drone wars right now. And it's kind of funny, like one of the biggest suppliers of military equipment in that domain is uh, DJI <laughs> and others who are commercial drone manufacturers. And to, to kind of bring it back, generative AI is kind of like the commercial drone manufacturers in that it's like when someone says, oh, some uh, we have evidence of someone breaking into your house, uh, you know, seeing something. I was like, yeah, what's this evidence? Well, the evidence is security camera footage. I'm like, I can generate for you now minutes of security camera footage. I can generate something completely different. How do you know that that wasn't even generated? I, I think we have no answers for this anymore. All the rules of evidence have gone out the window. But anyway, <laughs> you want to pick up? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. But, you know, I, I always go back to, um, and, and the way I kind of look at AI and machine learning and things like that is that you have basically three parts. Right. You have your data, you have your uh, platform and your processing, and then you have your output. Right. The data is where we spend the majority of our uh, where we should spend the majority of our time. We, we always talk a lot about that middle part. Right. Where where that's that's applying an algorithm, maybe tuning a couple of hyperparameters, whatever, doing all that stuff. But the data and when when you're looking at why is this drone able to attack this tank? It's been trained on this tank. This tank's been around for 50 years or whatever, you know, and it's been trained on this tank. It's been trained on, you know, um, go to this spot, uh, get a picture of this. It, it looks like match the picture and let your bomb go. Pretty straightforward. There is nothing to, I, I mean, uh, there's nothing too spectacular about it. The the big thing is the training. If you train that that drone, if you train the the um, the AI or the solution within that drone to identify that that tank and identify it quickly and be able to uh, avoid uh, countermeasures and all all these other things, you'll be able to destroy whatever you need. So the the whole point of this this spiel, I guess, is we have to focus on what we put inside the the the, the system. We have to put what the, the actual train that with the right data, right? Get it uh, whenever it's starting to to go off and it never never land. If it's attacked a, a car or something like that, then it's starting to drift. You got to retrain. You've got to, you've got, it's a, it's a child. You got to keep, you got to keep putting new data in there. And that's a, that's the portion we, we need to focus on real quick. I, I teach an AI class and you know, everyone comes in that class and they're like, oh, they're all excited and everything else. I'm like, oh boy, they're going to be, they're going to get their feelings hurt because we spend 90% of our time getting the data ready, right? We get the data ready, get pre-process input the missing file. and they're like man this is tedious i you know i don't know if you're going through it but oh my god it is it is tedious for me and then when they start to get towards the end of the semester and they're starting to be able to apply the, the algorithms and everything else then they're like oh my gosh 
I, if I had known that we had to do all this data prep and data processing and data life cycle stuff, I'd have never taken a class. I said, well, that's the whole point. I sucker you in and there we go. And that's AI for you. Um, actually, let's pick up a little bit on, on continuing the theme of modernization and data, because I know one of the things that we, we had talked about earlier was this idea of data sharing, especially we have different government agencies here. And, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about how, to the extent to which we're fostering data sharing and collaboration among, even within an agency, within the bureaus, that's difficult, but between the agencies, it's even more challenging. So, like, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of those initiatives or maybe what you kind of see, perhaps... We have this struggle, right? On the one hand, the more we make use of data, the more value we get. We have that, what, that pyramid, D-I-K-E-W pyramid, work our way up the pyramid by creating more value. But on the other hand, we have we want to protect the data. So we have more sharing on the one hand, less sharing on the other hand. Got to find that balance. That's your job. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the areas I think we're really starting to, to I would say, I mean, I don't know if you guys have heard about the the PQC, the post quantum cryptography project that's going on. That is that is one of the great ways that they're sharing data, right? It's it's collaborative. There's a lot of uh, open source and everything else like that. But um, so that's kind of a nice model that's going on right now. That's the that's the low end of it, right? Then you go to the next level where you have like the program I used to be deputy program manager for CDM. Where you're starting to share data within the agencies, you're starting to get um, incident handling, incident data to within the FSA very quickly, and 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 it's it's needed. So it's it's it gets to the CISO, they they get actions done, and they they're able to push that that um, information out to to the agencies to get them to do that. And then you have the other level where now you want to protect that there's sensitive data right that you don't want people to see right they you know so on with CISA, we're working to try to integrate uh pets you know privacy enhancing technologies such as uh homomorphic encryption secure multi-party computing uh differential privacy the the, the various um you know uh pets or privacy enhancing technologies that are out there. Oh, can't forget synthetic data because that's one of the biggest ones, right? Having synthetic data is going to allow you to be able to share that, that information and not give away that sensitive information about your organization, about people, about any places, about you know, within within the military space, I think that's where we're we're really pushing. We have initiatives going on with that are, we're really starting to build to be able to. And, and there's not a whole lot of infrastructure that you need on that, right? It's it's just being able to send that data out, but in an encrypted and secure fashion. That's why I kind of brought up the whole PQC thing because that's really important. Because if we get to that point that we have that. Um, quantum computer that can break all that our encryption, then we have to really start to worry about, oh my goodness, did we encrypt this correctly? So encryption, uh, privacy enhancing technologies, using um, you know programs like CDM, which share amongst our agencies, are, are some of the ways that we're really starting to push out. That's good. I watched Sneakers the other day. One of my favorite movies, No More Secrets, right? <laughs> 
Kind of makes it okay. So, Lou, I got a question for you, and then uh, I want to open it up. We, I know we got some more questions for the panel, but but I know you guys have some questions too. So, Lou, talk. Let's talk about the future. Kind of where do you see zero trust going, given all of the stuff we talked about here? Because so much of this is the present, but really the future. As I say, AI is like the oldest new technology, right? So, so uh, zero trust again. It's one of the. Uh, if you're not in cybersecurity, I don't know if you're feeling the same thing, but it, you know, in cybersecurity, it's the big hot button topic of the day. Everyone's trying to implement zero trust in their federal agencies. Um, and I here's where I see uh, zero trust in the future. I, if I do my job correctly in DOI, there won't be a need for a zero trust program in two to three years. Zero trust is it's not you know it's not about implementing a technology, a group of technologies or anything like that. It's it's about incorporating new ideas, thoughts. It's a it's a mindset. It's new principles for how we manage our cybersecurity, and it's incorporating that into everything you do. And that's why I you know one of the biggest things we're doing right now is we're focusing on changing the culture of DOI to move away from hey this is the way we've always done things to to say no. Zero trust is changing our, you know, is changing the way we manage our IT assets in a secure way. And it's, you know, we're training people, we're educating. We have a we have a monthly community zero trust community of practice where we we share information. We have 500 members of that team. And I, I know I keep mentioning John Kinderbog. I'm, I'm a bit of a fan, I have to admit. Uh, but if you if you yeah, if you ever want to really understand what zero trust is, look him up on YouTube. One, he's got like a ten-minute video that'll tell you everything you need to know about zero trust. But we were fortunate enough at our October meeting to have him come in and brief um, our community. We had three hundred ninety-three people on the call, so it's educating people, making them aware, and ideally, it's building you know this this group of people that in the future, system owners, you know, I not just cybersecurity people, system owners, developers. All IT practitioners, when they start to develop a system, just from the very beginning, they're incorporating those practices. So I hope in two to three years, my, my deputy Antonio is there. I hope we're out of a job, Antonio. What the, you know, we can do, we can do AI then. Right, they, yeah. We can we can switch to AI. So that's that's what I see the future of zero trust. And and then just the other thing, like I like I said earlier, conserving zero trust. You know, uh, for all you folks working on modernization initiatives right now, I'd highly recommend you talk to your zero trust program leads because it is something that is 100% driving modernization and everything we do. In just a quick example, I, I met with a program manager yesterday who, because uh, we all have the same problems. All of our challenges, one of the biggest challenges with modernizing an application is culture. Uh, we have a big application that he supports. I won't say what it is, but uh, it supports 30 federal uh, federal customers. And this application is 30 years old. It runs on a mainframe, and it's it's, it's uh, built in COBOL. Uh, so as you can imagine, they, do, you, do you guys know what COBOL is? Have you heard it? Have you heard it? That's a good mix. Yeah. So it's the, the It's not secure. It's the user interface is awful. And they can't find people to program it. And we were talking about I'm helping them do a TMF fund request because you know you put a little zero trust in there that always helps out. So you know, sprinkle a little, sprinkle a little zero trust. But but the reality is everything he's doing is fully aligned with our zero trust strategies, modernizing applications, making them more secure, which ultimately leads to better services. Um, but he was telling me his biggest challenges is like, look, I got these guys here uh, or th these people, guys, and you know people that 
they've been working here, you know, they've been developing managing the system for 30 years. They say, you know, it works. We know how to manage it. Why, why change it? You know, it's it's culture. That's one of the biggest things we need to change. That explains why the air traffic control systems from the 1960s, I think, or 70s still works. Uh, questions uh, for folks? Let's go way back here. Hey, so um, I don't come from a security background, but what I see is uh, that security, you know, has been assured now than before, and we had all sorts sort of cybersecurity before, and FedRAMP and all that cloud existed, but now all of a sudden we're talking zero trust. With zero trust, we're trying to define the unit that you are trying to authenticate, if it's application or if it's user or if it's anything, what is that level of granularity that, that we could say that there's some zero trust, a very large application would have some components, even after passing uh, that zero trust security disrupt things. So is it, from parameter security, it was building. Once you get into the building, everything is secure, but you still got components. You can get to this table, that thing, everything. But now you've got, you know, we're saying zero trust. So does with zero trust not comes that unit of work, you know, that we are trying to make sure, or is it yeah. still the same problem as before? No. Well, no, yeah. You, I think you're you're hitting on the right points here for zero trust. It's you know, instead of just having a key that lets you open up the door and walk into your house, it's also, you have, a, you have a key to walk into the house, but you may have a different key that opens the refrigerator because you may not, you know, your wife might not want you to get in there at certain times of the day. You know what I mean? So it's it's not you, not you in particular, sir. But, uh, sorry about that. But you know what I mean? It's about, it's not just about putting a lock on the front door. It's also identifying, well, what are some of the other assets in this, in this place that, we really care about that we want to put more controls around to, to protect and um and ensure and there might be some other things that you don't care as much about like lap, like laptops you know what you know who cares if you compromise one laptop here but <laughs> if, if you compromise a laptop and then you can jump to another trip what happened oh it's a touch screen. that shouldn't be that is it that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Oh, wow. Cool. I learned something new. I guess you guys can, can look at this zero trust. I didn't even realize these were all touch screens. This is not zero trust. trusting you all. You should be putting better controls around. Slide system. me back to slide three, why don't you? Oh, yeah, I love the back one. There you go. There you go. There you go. Thanks. <laughs> learned yeah. something new. So thank the giant. Right. Chan's part of my team too. She's fantastic. She was testing the system. Very good. Excellent. Fantastic. So um, the other thing, you know, I wanted to mention, because I think the other thing you're getting to is that, you know, me measuring zero trust, it's not a compliance thing. You're not either either doing zero trust or not doing. It's different levels of maturity. We in DOI, we, we're doing it right now, but we're at a rather low level of maturity. We've adopted the principles. We're incorporating them into all our practices, but we're increasing our maturity. So once we get to a mature state of, you know, you asked about, well, you know, what are what are what are the more granular granular levels of information you want to use to make decisions? You know, I talked a little bit about identity attributes. That's huge. More granular ways to make access decisions, but there's also a ton of other 
data, like um, device signals? Do you have some sort of vulnerability on your device? Based on that, we feed it into what we call a policy engine that could look at what you're trying to access. It could assign a risk, you know, a certain risk level to your device, and you may or may not be able to access things. We're going to be pulling information from threat feeds, you know, that correlate against vulnerabilities on your device that can help you make decisions. So, I mean, the possibilities are endless, you know, for what we can do. The technology is there. Uh, it's figuring out how to all make it work. But again, I go back to the biggest challenge is data. We need good data from these sources to make these decisions. Because if that data, if we can't ensure the integrity of that data, then we're going to have a lot of problems. So, um, any questions? Sir? I, I got, okay, one, one up here. Hi, uh, you talk about data is the most important thing, especially in machine learning and, and artificial intelligence algorithms. Um, I wonder what you think about the data itself getting corrupted, right? I mean, so if you talk about like any of these models that we have built today, they rely on the existing data and some kind of learning algorithm to sort of predict a future result. At some point, these kind of generative things are going to become so ubiquitous that all the new data that you're going to generate is going to be artificially generated. So you don't have access to clean data anymore. Um, and, and you have to find just these all these models will break down. Yeah, and that's that's a good point because that's why you have uh, to worry about model drift and, and uh, concept drift, right? And there, there are various technologies that, that uh, are starting to come out regarding those two instances. And then you, you, what you're bringing up is what what they they call adversarial machine learning, right? Learning how to to attack the uh, data, invert your your models, things like that. So you that's why I said you always have to be retraining your models, right? And and there there's there's basic ways to to do it. And I hate getting too technical, but you're you're. You, you have your training data, you have your test data, sometimes you have your validation data, right? And you, your, your training data could, based on the amount, if you have 100%, you're, you're looking at anywhere between 70 to 90 something percent of your, your, um, your data is going to be training data, right? And so you don't use all your training data because you save some back for your test data, and then you save a little bit back so that you can, it's like a management reserve. <laughs> and then you can, you can input it so that you can see when your your models are starting to drift and starting to go where they, they shouldn't be. So yes, they, when, when they're starting to put new data on top of that, right? You, you're able to also, there, there's also elements in there where you're able to look at um, the bias and the variance and everything else like that. So those are those. That, that's why I said there's there's so many little concepts that you can dig so deep down into that are mathematical that they're not sexy at all, right? They're they're like my you know fifth grade teacher right now, and it, it they're not sexy. So <laughs> I, she, she was. She, she, she was. She was. But you're you're looking at that and you're saying to yourself, oh my gosh, I've got to I've got to tune this part. I've got to tune that that part. It's a constant work, right? It's not a a you know leave, drop the mic and, and walk away type thing. It's constant work that you have to be doing when you're um, implementing machine learning algorithms. So two things just to echo on that. One of the things that um, when I would look at evaluating 
right? You can take two different approaches in AI. You can either develop it yourself or you can go out and buy it, right? Whereas if you're looking at modernization, those are really your kind of two primary, primary efforts. If you're going to build it yourself, then making sure that you've got the right tempo and retraining makes complete sense. And that might change depending upon how the world or the environment or the, the whatever it is that you're using machine learning um, on, how, how quickly that changes. Um, if you are purchasing it, however, this is always one of the first questions I ask. How do I retrain my model? How often do you retrain the model? How often are you training the model on my data? Uh, these are those are the types of questions that that you're going to want to ask if you're purchasing externally from federal government modernization side. But if I heard and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, what I heard uh, was if we're generating a whole lot of data, we're basically creating synthetic data that we're then training models on. That's is that the break? Is that the question you're asking? Cyclical cycle. So it, it, like, like how do I generate a new model? Like, like, you, yeah. yeah, like but, you, you create all the LLM generated content and then, okay, where is the new content that, that humans assume? Okay. That's a, that's a great question. And I, and I, again, I think we're, we're kind of the, the generative AI boom, boom has forced a lot of these more existential questions in the next level of thinking a hundred percent. If we are training a model on sheerly synthetic data, which as, as data scientists, as machine learning engineers, as people in the AI world, you're told you can do that, but only a little bit because you know it's not going to be truly valid, necessarily completely representative because it is synthetic data. And with all of the generative AI um, tools out there, you're basically creating a crap ton of synthetic data. Right. I, this gets into the labeling conversation. It gets into the idea of, of uh, um, watermarking data provenance. Like we are, we are we have so much to go to reiterate the data conversation. Cause you're right. If we don't track this, if there's no way of identifying what's synthetic or generative or resulting from generative models or not, we're going to come into a place where we have extremely brittle models. Zero, zero yep. truth. Exactly. exactly. I'm telling you, I'm going to be on it. Actually, let's, I want to piggyback on that. Okay. Don't talk about Don't talk about Oh, so terrible. Uh, I, you know, I want to get your unique perspective on this because, in addition to all these folks who have their experience in cybersecurity, you also have a little bit of that legislative experience. So, so that's a different world because usually I'm like all executive branch all day, all day. But like, you know, there's that crazy legislative branch, and the thing about that, I, it actually has me both interested and a little mm, concerned. Uh, you know, EU, the European Union just passed the AI Act, or very close to passing the air, it's pretty close, and you have a bunch of, you know, legislative people doing that. And I think to myself, okay, at some point Congress is going to try to do something similar. And then I were distinctly remembering a bunch of hearings that I saw, including I just watched the movie about the um, uh, the uh, the GameStop, uh, GameStop stock, I don't know if you guys saw that, but it was quite crazy. And there was a hearing in there. Where 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 uh, the legislature they tried really hard to understand what was happening, and it was clear they did not understand anything that was happening about meme stocks. I'm thinking these are the same people who are going to come up with laws about allowance or restriction of AI. It has me a little worried. So uh, maybe from your perspective, I think you're working you're working with one senator in particular, right? So, yeah. So maybe maybe kind of how is this going to how is this going to all come to play? play? Sure. So that. That exact conversation was the precise reason why I decided I was going to kind of take a little bit of a hiatus from the tech world and go look at the legislative world. Because uh, I, I said to myself, oh, my goodness, 
we're going so fast in technology. What is Congress doing? Um, and I will say that it was very eye-opening. I, I share in your interest, believe it that way. Uh, there was a, I, I was saying this to someone uh, before we started, um, I, I love watching the AI-related or machine learning-related hearings uh, for no other reason than seeing some of the gaffes. Uh, apart from Finsta, which everyone remembers, thank you, Senator Blumenthal, um, there was also another senator during an, uh, an armed services hearing. Um, they read scripts a lot of time that their staffers give them. Uh, and the question line was related to artificial intelligence AI. Well, apparently when you type out I in capital with the font, it looks like one. So he went through the entire hearing talking about A1. Not the stakes of We were very confused, but it was actually artificial intelligence. Um, so, so all kidding aside, uh, I, I um, there has been a real concerted effort uh, to try and understand and and kind of up the the overall awareness um, within Congress um, on artificial intelligence. So, um, the the it, the truth behind the, the curtain uh, is that staff staff run a lot of Congress. Um, most people think that it's a joke. It is, in fact, a reality and that the majority of Congress, day in and day out, the actual legislation, the, the priorities are set by the members with the legislation, digging into the details, understanding technology where they can, happens at the staff level. And there really is not a whole lot of aptitude at the staff level um, on advanced technologies to include machine learning and artificial intelligence. But this incredible, a lot of people in the tech industry said, hey, we need to change this. So there's been programs uh, like Tech Congress in which you get a lot of people from the technology community going and doing a year-long fellowship. Um, and they're bringing and revitalizing and infusing a lot of that awareness. Is it going to stay there? No. That's why I'm consistently advocating for people to do the crazy thing that I did and go live a year on the hill. Um, but as a result of that, you are seeing a lot more conversations. So uh, I spent the time on the Senate. I was in Senator Duckworth's office. Uh, I, I actually wrote a piece of legislation that almost made it into the National Defense Authorization Act this year. They cut it in Congress, Congress or uh, conference, and I was very upset when I found out. But it talked about culture and it talked about the people. Um, but but this year, the Senate in particular has put a lot of focus on it. So Senator Schumer brought a bipartisan group of people, and they've been talking about an AI. They've, they've hosted now the ninth AI forum, Insights Forum. This is phenomenal. And you've got senators who probably can't, couldn't a couple months ago spell artificial intelligence. Yes, they still can. <laughs> <laughs> this was before this, to be fair. Um, literally talking about concepts like watermarking, generative images. I mean, that is, and they get it. They get it. It's still unique. I'm not saying that there are many, but you're starting to see the aptitude grow. I still don't think it's where it needs to be, which is why I will also always push for people who are in the tech industry, whether to go to, to Tech Congress and spend a year on Hill, or just honestly offer opportunities to engage with staffers, because um, it really, 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 really does help. But I think we're getting there. We've got a long way to go, and I'm a cautious optimist, but but I think uh, we're, we're making some good progress in that world. Yeah, so there's there's a member of Congress who's actually getting a master's degree in artificial intelligence yep. at Mason. Yep. 
Um, so if you could talk to the rest of them, it would be great for them roll with numbers. So he's my he's my representative. And when I saw that, I I was like, yes. So John Byer. John Byer. Yeah. So I uh, Senator I uh, Senator King is also extremely excited about this area, Senator uh, Rounds. But um, Rep. Iron, again, some dive in, and it's really, really impressive. And it's, it's uh, that's what gives me the hope and knowledge. All right. Any other folks, comments? Um, any other questions? I'll, I'll, maybe I'll just do the wrap. we got, got maybe one or two in the background here, and we'll kind of do the wrap up if that's okay. Yeah. I want to be mindful of people's time. Holiday season, you know. Uh, when we talk about AI, especially in the federal government, uh, how do we segment and protect different data co-mingling with different agencies? Uh, I'm, I'm a small business. I'll just start, and then I'll let the smart people talk. But, uh, you know, it's a big challenge because, you know, in DOI, we have a, multi, a, a, a number of missions that, you know, are co-supported from other federal agencies. I'll give you one very important one, Wildland Fire. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but we have an organization called the Bureau of Land Management. My good friend Chris, stand up and say hi, Chris Quimina. He's one of our, <laughs> you didn't have to say that. He works there. Uh, he and I work together. He's one of their uh, senior IT operations managers there. So they have this very important mission. I mean, they literally manage, um, you know, firefighters uh, that are jumping into fires in the, in the middle of nowhere, you know, trying to put them out. And it's a life and death situation. We work very closely with the U.S. Forest Service, who's part of the USDA. Uh, and other state, uh, state and local governments. And we've had challenges for years where, you know, if you go out to one of these, you know, these wildland fire operation centers, they'll have like three or four computers on their desk because they have to have different different computers, different accounts in order to access different systems. And it's it's a terrible situation when they have such an important mission. So for years we've been trying to to fix this and it's and I know it sounds weird because I'm on the Zero Trust program, but it's been a matter of trust where we won't trust each other's uh, people to access the data. And you know what's fixing it is Zero Trust. I know it makes no sense, but it's true. We're now working with, I'm working with a gentleman who's the lead of the Zero Trust program at USDA. We're coming up with ways that we can use a common identity, access common data using common platforms. So it, it's been a huge issue for us for years, and I, you know, I, you know, obviously I'm going to promote the Zero Trust program. But it, it, again, it's another area where it's it's really driving us to modernize how we do things, um, because it's you know it doesn't it it allows us to take risks in certain areas we couldn't before because we are putting the right controls to protect this, the certain things we need to. So, and with that, I'll I'll see. Um, sure. It's kind of something I mentioned before. Uh, well, actually, a couple things. One is, I think you were talking about an effort to label and tag your data. Uh, that's that's an effort that, that should be ongoing and understanding. I, I mean, we've got things coming up on the horizon that, uh, you know, one day you actually have to do a, a PQC um, one and and PQC is coming, right? Where there's a possibility of breaking encryption and anything like that. So understanding the life cycle of your data, tagging your data, getting the, uh, that will not only help with keeping your data safe, but um, building on the zero trust principle as well. And then 
integrating, um, I, I mentioned this earlier, with privacy enhancing technologies, right? If, you, if you're storing your data correctly, um, you know, encrypting it, that's, that's the other way. Then the, the final way, and I think the most important way, is the access way, right? Making sure that the right access is given to the people that, that are going to be using that data. So that's that's one of the ways you 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 keep your data very segmented, very um you know it, it structured so that it can actually be used. But if you commingle it, um, there's still ways to to go around that where you're looking at pattern recognition and things like that. So there's still ways to to actually pull that data out. But the best way is probably tagging, getting some is the right encryption on there. Uh, privacy enhancing technologies, and of course, getting the right access um, uh, to to the folks. I guess my final count uh, audience question, and I'll wrap the pitch. Um, so, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I come from Jambay Lab background, and we're taught security is a cost of paradigm. horizontal paradigms. You can't hear me. It's actually full. Policy. Yeah, so uh, there are horizontal paradigms, you know, such as your application data platform. There are cross-cutting ones that touch everything. Security is one of them. Performance is another one. Investment is another one. Governance is another one. Security has been a cross-cutting paradigm. Zero Trust talks a whole lot about touching everything. Why now? Is it because we are going more and more networks? Are we going enterprise architecture? Are we people working from home? Is it COVID? What is it? So just so I understand, are, why are we doing zero trust now? Or I, I think honestly- yeah. yeah, why now maybe? There's a little bit of that. Why now? Yeah, because, yeah, and again, you, you mentioned how you know, security is you know, within an enterprise architecture, it's a cross-cutting capability, right? And uh, zero trust to me, Again, I know we're treating it as something different, but ultimately for me, it'll no longer be an initiative. It'll just be part of our overall security practices. And again, we'll be a cross-cutting thing. I think COVID had a huge thing to do with why we're doing it now. Um, and again, this isn't as much about zero trust. It is as COVID helped drive modernization, right? Uh, because, you know, at a certain point, we were all working from home. So every, every federal agency said, all right, how can we ensure our users can access the services they need? Traditional VPN from home going into an internal network is a terrible solution. We all realize that. Our VPNs are getting clogged up. Um, you know, people couldn't get in and access things. So that's, you know, moving moving systems to the cloud, you know, made it made it easier for people to access services. Zero Trust allowed us to do that in, in a secure manner. Uh, new services, does everyone know what SASE is? Is it every federal agency is implementing SASE, right? I just love SASE. How's that different? Just right. What's that? SaaS versus SaaS. So SaaS is software as a service. SASE is S-A-S-E, uh, Secure Access Service Edge, which is a basically a modern replacement for VPN. Uses uses some, you know, I, I hate I hate doing the acronym game because you know it uses something called ZTNA, Zero Trust Networking Access. What it what it really is, it's it's a it's a new modern way to, to remote access services using a cloud-based infrastructure versus your network you know, on-prem infrastructure. Anyways, it's a new, modern, better way to access services remotely. DOI, we, 
this was before I got involved in we didn't even we hadn't even started the zero trust program. Smart people like my my friend Antonio, I'll point him out, he was part of our modernization team at the time, said, look, we have everybody working from home now. VPN is getting bogged down. They went out and looked at industry and said, What's how can we do better? They purchased a SASE solution. Again, this was way before I even, I didn't know what SASE was back then. But I know now as a zero, you know, in my Marvel Zero Trust, I need to implement it from Zero Trust perspective. So yeah, I think I think COVID was a big driver for all of us because the old ways of doing things, and I know a lot of people we started doing some more telework here and there. But when you really started looking at how can we best deliver services to our remote users, the old way doesn't work. It, it kind of works, but it sucks. You know, trying to, again, you know, I don't have to talk about how bad VPN is from a user perspective. Security-wise, it's bad, too. It gives someone sitting at home a direct connection into every resource in your network. The beauty of SASE is what it does. It creates a secure tunnel from your endpoint to the application and only the application you need access to. So, so yeah, it was a big driver. And one final question. Um, just a question, uh, two sets of questions, Lou. So one for you being DOI, and we work together at DOI a lot um, right now. I'm with Lumen, by the way. You are who? With uh, Lumen. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I, we, we probably mostly talk on yes. video. So it's, um, yes, so, thank you for the SASE uh, implementation. So Appreciate it. where do we, Start right. DUI being such a large capital agency um, with uh, eleven bureaus, right? Everybody has a different mission. USGS doing something else, BLM, BOR, and all those. And you may never get a good starting point in terms of their applications wherever they sit. So, what would be a good starting point to kind of roll out whether zero first or modernization being the topic? Um, because if we keep waiting on getting all the good data. Available, then we may never start because the government, and I've been in government contracting for 20 years, so it's slow, right? The code, the entire wheel as they turn. Yeah. And um, the second question is uh, for everybody is um, the smaller agencies, right? Um, DOI, CISA, I work with them extensively 15 years. DOD, um, the budget is available, right? You have the one program office for zero trust, other things being researched, but the smaller agencies, what can be done to make this? research the data how to do things available to them so they can also benefit from it because they may not have the budget to do all the things you're doing so i'll start with the first one i'll let you guys answer the second one um so where do you start with zero trust that's you know zero trust is huge like i said it touches everything so sisa i mentioned you know sisa defined the zero trust maturity model which um, created five pillars. With each one of those pillars, they identify certain different levels of maturity for specific zero trust capabilities. Um, the other thing that CIS and OMB did, and, um, and I have a lot to thank CIS for. Thank you for the CDM program, by the way. We have taken great advantage of that. That's given us a lot of what we call our foundational zero trust enterprise solutions. So it starts, you know, it's, I, I don't necessarily can, Consider zero trust in architecture. I think it should fit into your overall architecture, but you could call it an architecture. You know, and so it starts with building the foundation, right? So you want to focus on building foundational capabilities that will support your zero trust. And it's not just about, it, you can't just say, well, I'm going to focus on the identity pillar or this pillar. You have to look at it holistically because, you know, the pillars won't, you know, they have to work together. Um, if you can have the best identity management solution in the world that, that incorporates phishing resistant multi factor authentication, but within the application pillar, if you still have 30-year-old applications that don't support your identity management solution, 
you're still using username and passwords. You know what I mean? So it starts with build, building foundational capabilities. You know, so it's about for a lot of agencies, they're still trying to build, you know, um, enterprise services, right? Enterprise solutions like, you know, as a, a single common identity management solution. Uh, we have the PIP card, but, you know, a, but a common, everyone uses, you know, the um, US access, USA access, right? But what else are you doing? You know, do you have a common active directory sort of framework that, you know, supports, you know, your author, authorization capabilities? It starts with, you know, foundational key enterprise capabilities you need. You need. We look at SASE as a, as a foundational capability. I, you know, it, ideally it's a remote access solution, but we're looking at it in the future as more than that. Like in our remote offices, right now we still pay expensive, you know, paper expensive T1 circuits that connect us. I probably shouldn't tell you, I know you were slimming, so no, no offense about these expensive circuits, but you know what I'm talking about. So we're looking at leveraging more commodity internet in our remote offices and leveraging SASE, which treat our remote offices like, like they're, you know, working in a remote office, you know, without, you know, having to connect back into the internet. Um, again, foundational th data, and like I mentioned, foundational things that we need to do. We need to categorize all our data. Seems kind of basic, right? We haven't done it yet. We have to at least start by categorizing all our data and then work out how we can start, you know, delivering tags and automating things. So, so again, where do you start? You got to start in all the pillars, find out what are the base foundational things you need to do to get started, mature those capabilities over time. Because the other thing you'll hear about zero trust, you'll hear this a lot. It's, it's a journey. And I, I'm not a big fan of that phrase. I, you know, I, you know what I mean. A lot, it's uses. Oh, it's a journey. That means oh, they don't know what they're talking about. But I can tell you, zero trust. It's a journey, and it's it's uh, <laughs> the journey is the reward. It is a continuous. It's a nonstop journey. Sort of continuous journey. So again, start with foundational capabilities and mature over time. It's going to take some time. All right. If okay. Well, maybe we'll do some wrap up here because you got the mic. So we'll talk to Joe. We'll go to Marty. We'll go to Lou. And you guys did a great job. I had a whole bunch of questions, but honestly, you guys were great. And, uh, well, you know, we do want you guys to have time to talk to each other and eat the rest of the shawarmas and the, the falafel, all that good stuff. So uh, let's wrap it up with, like, with, let's talk about modern, kind of modern. Today's modern is yesterday's legacy. Tomorrow is the future and all that good stuff. I could throw it at you. But kind of, kind of where do you see things heading? Kind of given everything that's happening now, where do you see things heading? Maybe where do you want to see things heading? Um, that's a good question. Uh, so I, I actually see things heading a lot more into the AI space. I, I mean, it, I know it's a, it's a kind of a cop out, but it's the truth. We, we, we're, we're now starting to touch the, the true capabilities that are available to us. And I think, you know, we can support, uh, zero trust, um, the, you know, starting with, you know, identity and access, uh, you know, getting to the data part, understanding which data is the right right data to, to use the prioritization. So I, I really feel like our, our AI and, and machine learning capabilities are really going to be pushing us towards that, that, you know, yeah, towards that modernization. I mean, we're we're really starting to see the the starting to touch the capabilities that that we, that we can have, and as as more people get educated on it, and I hope people get educated on it, and they don't just repeat circular intelligence. I used to work in the IC for a while, and the, the, that was the worst thing. If you didn't verify your source, you were in trouble. And so, understanding that 
you know, there's there's things that we need to learn about it. And don't just take people's word for it. Don't just take uh, no no offense to the vendors, but don't just take the zero trust label on the <laughs> on the software as you know. Oh well, it, it's going to solve all my problems. It's not going to solve all your problems. It's it it truly really is a journey. Everything that you're any kind of technology is a journey, and you have to be willing to put in that time and the effort and and the maintenance for it. It's not there's nothing that you have to that you can leave and say I've made it. I'm I'm done. I can sit back and put my feet up. I mean, you buy a house. I mean, that is a that is a that's a maintenance right there. You buy a car. It's maintenance. You know, you you have kids. It's maintenance. So it's it's lots of maintenance. And but you you understand where I'm going with the technology. Technology is maintenance, right? And understanding how to build it, understanding how to grow it, and then once it's once it's finished, understanding when to um, dispose of it and bring in that new set of technology. So I think we we just have to uh, to know that it's not it's not a one shot. And, and, and one kill, it's it's going to be um, a lot of work. All right. Marty, where are we heading? <laughs> uh, so I think because I'm, I'm going to build on the AI side, but to get slightly different, um, I think two things. First, I think AI provides the most like substantial amount of opportunity in front of us if we use it and we approach it appropriately. Um, and I think that requires a lot of people to to uh, up their awareness of artificial intelligence and stop allowing it to be just a technology, just a dom- just a, an element or a tool, but bringing more people into it. As liberal arts folks, we need to be well-versed. We need to be brought into that conversation. It can't just be all the data scientists, the machine learning engineers, the data engineers, the IT specialists, the security specialists. We need to be in that conversation if AI is really going to take root the way that it can. And I think the way that it's going to do that is in these little entrepreneurial-like pockets within the within the, the government, quite frankly. That's going to make it very hard because of the question you asked previously, which is how do you get smaller entities, you know, to or smaller agencies that may not have the budget? We got to figure it out. And and as as you know, leaders and people within the government. We have to set that space. So I see the future as a great amount of opportunity where technology isn't just for technologists, but for everyone. And I think in order to actually realize that, again, we need to create an environment which entrepreneurialism is really fostered at the highest level within the government. I think that's where you're going to see the most amount of monetization, again, if done right. Thanks, Lou. Yes, yeah, final word on this. I'm not going to talk about AI because I don't. I don't want to follow these two. But um, but yeah, it's absolutely yes. I do believe that's the future. So I'll talk about cybersecurity. That's what I know, and, and I'll I'll tell you where where I see the future. And I like I've, I've said a couple of times, zero trust to me. It's I almost think it's funny now after doing it for I've been I've been on this program two years now. Um, OMB twenty two and nine came out in January of twenty twenty two. Is that right, Ron? I think somewhere in there about. And it seems like I just started, but I feel like I finally got to a point where, oh, I get it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I get it. It's not about, you know, implementing a bunch of stuff. It's about changing people's minds about how we do things. So we're, 
we'll continue to do that work. And like I said, I hope to work myself out of a job so I can work with these two and do AI. Because that's sort of the really cool stuff. Or figure skating. Or figure skating. And it's like football. The same yeah. Thing. But the, the other thing I hope to see in, in cybersecurity, because in, in, I mentioned this a little bit earlier too, you guys are all modern, you know, people doing modernization work, right? Which is really key and critical to the, the federal government because we are we are slacking in, in the services we provide. Our taxpayers pay a lot of dollars and we don't give them the, the services we should. You know, they, um, uh, and I know there's pockets of excellence out there. I'm not saying we're all doing it bad, but you know, I'll just tell you from DOI's perspective, we have some really great modern services and we have some really old, terrible ones. So what I really hope to see in cybersecurity is, and I've hoped this for years, and I hope this happens, is that they really become a partner to the business and mission areas to and help them from the very beginning, not be some not to be the the um you know the 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 innovate, you know, the uh, I can't think of a good word to say, but the people that stop innovation, that's the best I can think of. But the people that, hey, let's Roadblocks, yeah, saboteur, that's a good one. But the people that, hey, let's get our cyber guys in because they're going to help us develop the best possible solutions we can that can operate, deliver great mission services at the lowest risk possible and help us manage our, our risks. And that's why, honestly, I in my Zero Trust program, I, I've surrounded myself with, with mission, you know, uh, modernization people. And I'll, I'll embarrass my good friend Antonio again because he he loves when I talk about him. Antonio's my deputy, and I recruited him. He's part of my team. I've been, Antonio, I love you. Oh. <laughs> All right, that was too much. Moments here. That was too much. No, but he, <laughs> I know that that was. My goodness. <laughs> All right, not like not, not like a fifth grade teacher. That's that was too much. I hope you. Teacher. Hey, that was worse. The fifth grade teacher. <laughs> no, but Antonio's background is modernization. He's been working on that for years, and we're trying to incorporate those ideas and thoughts into our zero trust strategy. So, again, my, my hope for the future for, for cybersecurity is that we are looked at as partners to, to you guys really doing the cool modernization stuff, and we're there to help you do it in, a, in the most secure way possible. Sounds great. Well, as I say, I'm going to piggyback on the journey thing, and I'll bring Mershit back up here in a moment here. And as I say, this is all a journey. We all know that if you want a journey fast, with a journey alone. If you want a journey far, journey together. So we are all here journeying, journeying together. The panel, the attendees, let's give them a big round of applause. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators. Go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.